0: A lot of people, a lot of people wouldn't expect that I went through times like this. And so they can read that and say, wow, she survived it,
1: she ever came in, she did it in a sober manner, she, you know, maybe I can too. Actress Janine Turner, today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Buell Thompson. Janine Turner is best known for her roles on TVs, Northern Exposure and Friday Night Lights, and in the movie Cliffhanger. But until 2014, much of her private life, including how she prevailed over heartbreak and alcoholism and the death of her father, had remained pretty much out of public view. That was the year she wrote an autobiography, a book called A Little Bit Vulnerable. And that's when I interviewed her. So here now from 2014, actress Janine Turner. You've been writing books since you were in third grade, I guess, haven't you?
0: Well, I have always loved to write. Yes, yes. That's amazing that you know that. I guess I talked about that in my book a little bit. Um, When I was uh, in third grade, I won a writing contest, which I just remember they, I remember the moment they threw out some sort of um, subject title line and said, okay, now write, and uh, I won, and so I remember being enthralled with with just, I don't know, you know, I guess it's just one of those things that that comes easily to me. I've often joked that it's my great-grandfather in heaven who... (laughs) He loves to write. He loves to write. But the other is, I've also loved my founding father since I was eight years old, and asked my dad, "To dad, if our founding fathers were to come back today, what would they be most disappointed about?" So I don't know what eight-year-old asked that, but good.
1: <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I am hugely impressed that you have saved all or, or so many of the things that you've written in your youth, your teenage years, your your twenties. Your I mean, most of that stuff that, that I had is gone somewhere.
0: Well, you know, I'm really grateful to it. I had put it away on a shelf for about let's see, twenty years or so and hadn't even looked at it again. Twenty, thirty years, I don't know, time escapes me. And um and I am really glad. You know, the poetry, the first chapter is poetry, only the first chapter, so it won't freak people out if they don't like poetry. <laughs> but it really it really packs an emotional punch in a way that just a simple chronalization of my years could never do because it was harnessed. During those moments of emotional um, tribulation, you know my poetry back then was my coping skill, my great survival skill, so um, when I found it, I thought wow this this actually makes me feel a little bit vulnerable, but this also I think tells a story in a way that uh, that could, not,
1: could never be captured now. Well, but it's also so raw, and I don't mean in a, in a bad way. I mean it's raw in the sense that you haven't filtered it through 30 years of experience in the meantime. Like so many of us tend to do when we write. you know, If I, if I were to write something that happened when I was in my teens or my 20s, I would filter it through who I am now and what I've experienced in the meantime. But if I, were, if I had things from my writings from back then as you did, you could see exactly what you were going through and what you were thinking and where your mind was at.
0: Yes, exactly, and that's why I decided to go ahead and be vulnerable and uh, and publish it because I thought it, it just it can't be replicated, and um, and it's it's just gotten a tremendous response where people say that exact thing. It's like wow, you know, because I literally wrote it during during those times. I mean, uh, good, bad, traumatic, uh, dramatic, whatever they were. I, I wrote it down in a thick of the emotional because it literally, because I was, you know, I, I document my sobriety through early sobriety through those days as well. And so I had poetry before sobriety and after sobriety. And, and it really shows the walk through sobriety in a way, uh, that really wouldn't be able to capture it in a basic sort of, uh, looking back in the rear view mirror type thing. It was, it all happened in the raw right then there because I would sit down and instead of picking up a drink, I would sit down with a little typewriter
1: mm-hmm. and I
0: would just pound away and write or, and it really, it really took me sober. It was a great tool.
1: Wow. So was it difficult then to decide what would go in this book and what maybe wouldn't?
0: Well, a little bit. I didn't put everything in there. Um, some some was just too vulnerable.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Maybe that's for the next book, a little more vulnerable. Um, <laughs> but it was uh, – so there were some that, that I didn't put, and, and I, I wanted you know – but I, pretty much, I put, about, I put about
1: 95% of it in there. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, uh, without being too much of a play on words, that is being vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. <yes. laughs> I mean, if, if it's any consolation to you, as a side note, I mean, many of us on this side of the microphone feel a little awkward making people like you feel a little bit vulnerable because there is, I mean, when you put your life out there, especially in a very frank way like you have, we have a responsibility not to to take unfair advantage of that and try to poke you with it, I mean, it's we, have, we should instead respect you for what you've done, which is to lay bare the parts of your life that maybe other people wouldn't.
0: Well, I appreciate it. Not everybody's that classy, um, I might add. Um, but, you know, I just feel the reason I did it is is because I thought, well, if someone can, can read this and see that I went through this, because I think a lot of people, a lot of people wouldn't expect that I went through times like this. Um, and so if they can read that and say, wow, she survived it, she overcame it, she did it in a sober manner, she, you know, maybe I can too. It's, you know, if one person gets through a depressed time or decides to get sober in some sort of way, then, it, then it's worth it. The whole thing's worth it.
1: Well, you know, the, the obviously the stereotype of actors in general, you must be high or drunk at all times on something or other because, uh, you know, we've all heard the stories of, you know, uh, of celebrities who we loved and respected, and it turned out they went through their entire career stoned or high or drunk or whatever. I mean, how do, how do you then fight that stereotype and reveal to us, well, okay, not all of us are like that?
0: Well, I talk about that in my book, actually, and, um, you know, I, I believe, having walked through this, having, I did some acting before, and then I did a lot of acting after, because I, you know, this is before Northern Exposure, I got sober at age 23, but we are more in touch with our emotional life uh, with, with our feelings, when we don't, you know, and I never did drugs, it was all alcohol, but when we don't use our drink, I believe we are more in touch with our emotions, uh, more vulnerable, more able to, to, to bring the light, the, 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 the openness of soul, so to speak, that one needs to reveal on screen. Um, and that's, so that's a misnomer. I think a lot of actors think that, like, oh, if I were to get sober, then, then I wouldn't be able to, to act or but that I think that's wrong. I think it actually blocks. I think for those who have the hereditary gene and for struggle with alcohol, um, I think that it, it blocks all the God given purpose and destiny within one's life. And it's very, very unfortunate. And I also, um, uh, when I watch actors, I want to see them, if they're portraying drunk or, or drugged or something of that nature, I, I want to see them act that. That's acting. If I can tell on screen that someone looks, they're supposed to be playing drunk or drugged, and they are drunk or drugged, I consider it a cheat. That's not acting. It's not acting at all.
1: <laughs> that's just, that's <laughs> just their reality.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's much more fascinating uh, to watch someone like Meryl Streep, who you know is sober when she acts, portray to, to portray as someone uh, in a movie I saw recently that she did. What was it? Oh, it was, oh gosh, I can't
1: uh, County, yeah, yeah, County Right, right yeah. Uh,
0: and you know, she's such a professional She was over to watch her play drunk It's fascinating But if you know
1: someone already is It's it's not Well, have, having wrestled with alcoholism yourself Does it make you at all uncomfortable Now to see like 60s sitcoms Where they deal with drunkenness as a punchline I mean, when you have Foster Brooks And, and Otis the Town Drunk On the Andy Griffith show And we treat it with har 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 That's so funny mm-hmm. It's not so funny
0: no, it's not funny. Um, I think that the I, I won't even go see those movies that are out now, even um about the the hangover movies because um, you know, a lot of people when they go into blackouts, um, which people don't really even understand, a blackout is when you're still functioning but you just don't remember what you're doing. And as opposed to just passing out, a lot of people have blackouts and so they're functioning but they don't remember anything and that's when really devastating tragic things occur um, in people's lives. And, um, it's just really not funny at all. And, you know, interestingly enough, um, one of my, I, I go in you know, my first chapter is about early sobriety and poetry, but then I go into essays on the federalist and opinion editorials. And, and then a chapter at the, at the end of the book is about how to keep sobriety. It deals more with now that I have 28 years and I go into more depth about, um, with all different types of genres, uh, radio talk show transcripts, speeches, a, a transcript with Bob Beckel. Um, a Democrat, but we find common ground about sobriety. And, and I even have a letter from my great-grandfather. Uh, we call him Grandpa JB, who at, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, was was, was withdrawing from John Bollycorn, is what he called it. Mm. And he wrote. See, I'm, I'm grateful he wrote. He did the same thing. He wrote uh, later, he chronicalized about 20 years later, what it was like for him to go through or maybe did it then, but he dated it you know later. But to what it was go, what it was like to go through the withdrawals with the snakes you saw on the wall and the, the raccoons and, <laughs> and pictures talking. And so I put that in the book as well. And so it's just a real it's a journey.
1: Wow. Now I wanted to ask you, you were so devoted to your father and he passed away as you were putting this book together. How did that change the way you finished the project?
0: Oh, it changed it drastically. I was compiling the book. I was It was one of my New Year's resolutions, and I was really working, at, you know, very avidly on it. And uh, then I get the call that my father died, and my whole world was just shattered. I love my father. I'm sitting in his chair right now, as a matter of fact. And um, I went through, I just I just did somersaults through four months, and... Um, you know, my father was a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. It was one of the first to fly twice in speed of sound in the Air Force, and in, in the B fifty eight Hustler. And I just loved him. We were a lot alike. We were so sort of, he was like my sole parent. And so what I did once again is I sat down with the pen and I wrote two poems um, about what it was like dealing with his death. But in, they're pretty dark. Um, and then I wrote a letter to him, and and that letter just took sort of a real prose type of feel. And it's gotten a really a kind of a people say they read it and they just cry. It's it's gotten a mm. a really nice response. People are very touched by it. And um, so I just kinda of bear all bear it all out there too, about what I've learned about when something loved one passes and, and my reflection on his life and how it affects me now. And it's it was pretty intense. And once again it was a it was a wonderful cathartic way for me to deal with it and, and everyone's, you know, lost someone at some point. So once again I thought it might be a
1: you
0: know, perhaps mm-hmm. shed shed some sort
1: of inspiration mm-hmm. now let's talk about one of the ironic things and that is that people will will respect you for talking about your your alcoholism they'll respect you for the great love for your father they'll think your poetry is magnificent but when it comes to your political views there are people who will just shut their minds and they don't even want to hear what you have to say is it tough to be a conservative these days
0: Yes, it's tough to be a conservative, and, and ironically, it's tough to sell a book, <laughs> they're like, oh, I love the poetry, I love the, oh, oh, she's a conservative, forget about it, um, but it, it, is, it is, it is, I mean, not to the conservative audience, of course, but to the broader audience, but that's, that's actually, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to reach, that's why I did it this way, because, you know, I've lived in Hollywood a long time, uh, the majority of my life with in show business so far, and I still, I did three movies this past year, so I'm still active and I've seen, I've seen, I've lived in that liberal world and, and I have, um, I've experienced and, and, had a lot of good friends and, and, and whatnot. And so I, I experienced their humanness. So my angle is wider, uh, you know, I have more of a wide angle lens and a zoom lens. And, and what I'm hoping is that someone might pick this book up, um, who maybe doesn't follow my, my conservative political career. And, uh, you know, be enlightened somewhat or, or, or find out that Republicans really aren't that bad, you know, <laughs> uh, that the Constitution's nonpartisan. Um, but yes, it's very difficult to be a conservative in Hollywood. A lot of people don't even speak out. Um, I had someone get out of a trailer once and come up and whisper in my ear and said, I'm with you, but don't tell. <laughs> um, that's when I was campaigning for McCain Palin just because they're afraid of losing work. And I, I tackle that a lot in my opinion editorials in the book about the hypocrisy in Hollywood and even, uh, what Wall Street does. I mean, Madison Avenue, not Wall Street, but what Madison Avenue does with their advertising. You know, it's so incredibly ironic to me that they hire uh, liberal actors who hate big business to do big bank commercials.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, listen, if you, you could put together a whole book just of the ironies uh, of, of
0: Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh,
1: but, I tackle the other. But as you look back on it now, and and again, this is probably an unfair, unfairly oversimplified question. But as you look back on it now, might it have been, from a political standpoint at least, a mistake to have married Alec Baldwin? <laughs> Well, I was
0: engaged. We never got married. Um, right, but, but I mean,
1: but I mean, if you got—I mean, strictly from a political standpoint, I'm not, i don't want to talk huh? about your, the relationship, but just just yeah, the yeah. politics. <laughs> that, that
0: would it would been? If, would it been better if I had married him? No, oh,
1: it would have been. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's a good thing that you didn't.
0: Oh, I see what you're asking. You know, career-wise, yes, it would have been much better. Uh, <laughs> yes, because we're, as a conservative, you are not a part of the a list. Um, you don't get to go to the hobnob and to the parties and whatnot. Now I've been there when I'm nominated for awards and stuff, but just socially, you're you're excluded. So yeah, if I had exactly, I may have been uh, a <laughs> part of an A-list couple. in <laughs> the
1: But you know, there are, there are so many people who have followed your career all these years and they've loved you and all the things that you do. I don't I I, I don't sense that you've really lost out on a whole lot. Have you? I mean, because because um, of your views.
0: No, you know, some, I, I think there are some things for sure. Absolutely. Um, just, just for no other reason, I, I just, you know, I wasn't willing to take my clothes off or, you know, it's like mm-hmm. a lot of my comrades were whipping their tops off and I didn't want to do that either. So, I mean, it might've, but, but you're right. I mean, I, I think that there are, um, Northern Exposure was awesome. A great, great experience in my life. I, I just did, uh, you know, you don't really know a lot of the movies that you don't get or why you don't get them. But, but I just um, I have worked and continue to work, and, and I think that it's 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 you do miss out on some work, but Hollywood isn't an all bad place.
1: If you are working, you are a successful actor.
0: There you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Today, Janine Turner is fifty-seven. She hasn't been on TV in a while, but she appears in movies from time to time, and she remains politically active. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, former FBI undercover agent Joseph Pistone. Now, the public knows him better by the name he adopted when he went undercover for the FBI and infiltrated the mob, Donnie Brasco. My 1989 interview with Joe Pistone. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson.